Human DNA can be found literally everywhere. A free smart TV that is definitely too good to be true, a serious key pass vulnerability, and much more. Welcome to Surveillance Report 132, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. Henry's not here this week. He's got a little bit of burnout, and he's taking the weekend off. And the reason I wanted to share that is just to kind of remind you guys that it happens to all of us. You know, privacy can be kind of an uphill battle sometimes, and, you know, that's not all we got going on. We got personal lives, we got work, we got all that fun stuff. So burnout's a real thing. Happens to everybody. Make sure you take care of yourselves out there. I'm a firm believer that you are of no use to the overall privacy movement if you yourself are burned out. So take care of yourselves, and Henry will be back next week, hopefully refreshed and ready to go. In the meantime, you can still support Surveillance Report and keep us going. You know, it's nice when the one less stress we have to worry about is funding. If you want to keep us going, we have Patreon is probably the easiest way. It's recurring. You get perks for $5 a month. You can ask questions. For $10 a month, you get an extended version of this podcast that has more of our banter and does not have this promotional spot. If you don't care at all about the perks, but you still want something recurring and you want to protect your privacy a little more, we have LibrePay. And then, of course, if you want maximum privacy, there is Monero. We still accept that. We see all your contributions, and we are so grateful. So thank you so much for those of you who support us, who are able to. And if you are not able to, we totally understand. We thank you for the free support as well, like telling people about the podcast, sharing it around, and stuff like that. All right, let's start off with our highlight story, which is interesting. So the headline says, human DNA is all over the place, raising privacy concerns. Quoting the article, every habitat on Earth is littered with environmental DNA, or eDNA, which is made up of genetic fragments cast off by living things through normal processes, such as shedding skin, coughing, or defecating. Recent advances in eDNA research have produced dramatic breakthroughs that have helped scientists track human pathogens, monitor endangered species, and even explore ecosystems that existed millions of years ago. Whereas previous studies have deliberately looked for human eDNA at various sites, wildlife biologists at the University of Florida stumbled across troves of our genetic material almost by accident. The researchers initially set out to monitor endangered sea turtle populations as part of their work with UFC Turtle Hospital, but were astonished to find vast quantities of human eDNA in samples collected from water, sand, and air, according to his study. This quote-unquote human genetic bycatch, as the team called it, was not only more abundant than expected, it was also surprisingly high quality, allowing the researchers to probe ancestries and pathologies of local communities by sequencing eDNA. The results suggest that eDNA bycatch may emerge as a unique and powerful tool for fields like public health, wildlife conservation, archaeology, and criminal forensics. However, human genetic bycatch may also enable nefarious activities, including surveillance of individuals or minority groups, or the collection of genetic information without the knowledge and consent of local populations. Existing genetic databases have already contributed to human rights abuses and the commodification of genomic data, which is a particular concern to indigenous groups. The application of human eDNA approaches could further undermine genetic consent, limiting the ability of threatened minorities to withhold their genetic information. In the future, human eDNA could also be utilized to determine whether members of a genetically distinct group were present in given populations, for example, through wastewater monitoring or air filtering at checkpoints in urban areas or in private dwellings. Such potential is particularly chilling given the propensity of humans to carry out ethnic persecution and genocide throughout our history, unquote. I think this story is more, as far as privacy concerns go, it's more of a broad strokes thing. It's very unlikely that your individual DNA will be like picked out of the air or something like that and used to prove like you were there at this time. But it definitely raises concerns, like they said, on like a a community level. And, you know, we do see around the world, we see persecution of groups of people in all kinds of ways. Persecuting specific groups of people is definitely a thing. Yeah, I guess as as with a lot of things, I think this is just something interesting to be aware of. And it's certainly startling. You know, they, they mentioned that 
this is commonplace. You know, people, all, all animals are always shedding genetic material like skin and stuff like that. But the fact that it is so high quality and the fact that they can do so much with it is certainly interesting. And hopefully bringing awareness to this, I think, will allow us to get ahead of the curve before this gets abused for something nefarious. All right, with that, we'll move into the data breaches. We'll start off with the U.S. Department of Transportation, who is investigating a data breach impacting federal employee personal information. This affected 237,000 employees, and in a statement to Reuters, they said that the preliminary investigation has isolated the breach to certain administrative systems at the department used for functions such as employee transit benefits processing. It did not affect any transportation safety systems, unquote. There's not really a lot of information about this breach. They haven't said who was behind it or anything like that. If we hear anything, we'll keep you updated. Our next breach comes from Lexotica, who is a name you probably haven't heard of, but if you're like me and you wear glasses, you've definitely dealt with them. They've confirmed a 2021 data breach after the information of 70 million customers leaked online. So Lexotica is the world's largest eyewear company, and they do glasses, prescription frames, and they own brands like Ray-Ban, Oakley, Chanel, Prada, Versace, Dolce, and Cabana, Blue, uh, Burberry, Giorgio Armani, Michael Kors, and many others. Like 90%, they're, they're pretty much a monopoly. The company also operates iMed, a vision insurance company in the US. In November of 2022, a member of the now-defunct Breach Forums attempted to sell what he claimed to be a 2021 database containing 300 million records of personal information related to Luxottica customers in the United States and Canada. According to the seller, the database contained customers' personal information such as email addresses, first and last names, addresses, and dates of birth. A ransomware gang stole the data of 5.8 million Pharmerica patients. Pharmerica is a pharmacy services provider in the US operating 180 local and 70,000 backup pharmacies and serving 3,100 medical facilities nationwide. According to the breach notification submitted to the office of the Maine Attorney General, attackers breached Pharmerica systems on March 12th, stealing full names, addresses, dates of birth, social security numbers, medications, and health insurance information of 5.8 million people. Pharmerica is now offering one year of credit monitoring through Experian, so nothing as usual. Freeze your credit, it's free. Capita warns customers they should assume data was stolen. Capita is a business process outsourcing firm. The attack took place in early April and was disclosed. And now Capita is warning specifically the university superannuation scheme, which is the largest private pension scheme in the UK. They are warning the USS to, quote, react under the assumption that their members' data was stolen, unquote. They say that servers were accessed, which held about 470,000 active, deferred, and retired members' personal information, like names, dates of birth, national insurance numbers, and member numbers. Air Baltic has exposed passenger info to others due to a technical error. We saw something similar to this last year, I think, with a different carrier. Air Baltic is Latvia's flag carrier, I guess, like kind of their biggest airline, and they have acknowledged that a, quote, technical error exposed reservation details of some of its passengers to other Air Baltic passengers. Passengers also reported receiving unexpected emails, which addressed by the name of another customer. The Riga-based airline operates flights to 80 destinations and is 97% government-owned. Although the carrier says the leak impacts a small percentage of its customers and that no financial or payment data was exposed, the airline has yet to disclose the total number of impacted passengers. Bleeping Computer was told the exposed information may have included passengers' full names, dates of birth, email addresses, etc., whatever etc. means. This does not appear to be the result of a cyber attack. It does seem like it was just a, some kind of misconfiguration somewhere. Air Baltic claims that it impacted 0.009% of reservations, which Bleeping Computer did the math based on how many flights they get every year. That's still hundreds of people. Even though it didn't really reveal any like payment information or anything, a lot of people who reported this, they were posting about it online and they were like, yeah, I can access this person's 
flight information. I can change their flight information. So not good stuff. Okay, and then we just have a quick, a couple of quick updates. First off, an 18-year-old has been charged with hacking 60,000 DraftKings betting accounts. So we covered this story, I want to say last year or maybe earlier this year. DraftKings is one of those online sports betting apps slash websites. If you watch YouTube or listen to podcasts, even if you're not a sports ball person, you've definitely heard ads for them. The Department of Justice revealed today that an 18-year-old man named Joseph Garrison from Wisconsin has been charged with hacking into the accounts of around 60,000 users of DraftKings sports betting website in November of 2022. According to the complaint, the suspect used an extensive list of credentials from other breaches to hack into the accounts. He then sold the hijack accounts and the buyers stole approximately $600,000 from around 1,600 compromised accounts. Moreover, the search also led to the discovery of at least 69 files known as word lists containing roughly 38 million username and password combinations also used in credential stuffing attacks. They also found some other stuff that's in the article. For those of you who were not around for that story or maybe don't remember it, when this happened, DraftKings actually didn't do anything wrong. They didn't have a breach. They didn't have like a phishing attack or anything like that. It was actually credential stuffing, people reusing the same usernames and passwords across multiple websites. That's what allowed this guy to get away with this. Remember to use unique passwords. We'll talk about password managers a little later in the episode. Whatever your preferred method is, remember to not reuse usernames and passwords. And then our last update comes from Dish Network, who likely paid the ransom after a recent ransomware attack. This happened back in February, and they're basing this information on the wording used in the data breach notification letters that were sent to impacted employees. While it didn't directly confirm it paid, Dish implied as much by saying that it, quote, received confirmation that the extracted data had been deleted, unquote. That is it for data breaches this week, and we will move into companies. This particular article comes from TechCrunch, but... The story itself made the rounds. There's a lot of different outlets discussing it. The headline says, Telly, the quote-unquote free smart TV with ads, has privacy policy red flags. So TechCrunch says, yesterday we looked at a new hardware startup called Telly that's giving away half a million of its new smart TVs for free. The catch is that the 55-inch smart television is fitted with a second display that sits underneath and displays ads while you watch your favorite shows. The trade-off for a free television is agreeing to let this brand new startup collect vast amounts of data about you because the money ads make from you cover the cost of the television itself. According to its privacy policy, the startup collects data about what you view, where you're located, what you watch, as well as what could be inferred about you from that information. So they were they were collecting data for targeted advertising, which is not surprising. I, I mean, this shouldn't be news to anybody, although they do manage to get worse. Actually, let's go ahead and talk about that now. So TechCrunch says, we pasted below the portion of Telly's privacy policy verbatim, typos included, as it was published at the time and have highlighted the questionable passages in bold for emphasis. So as noted in the terms of use, we do not knowingly collect or solicit personal data about children under 13 years of age, blah, blah, blah. And this thing is just riddled with mostly a a lack of spaces I've noticed here from all the red lines from autocorrect. But here's, here's the one that really jumped out to me where they put it in bold. If we learn that we've collected personal data from a child under 13 years of age, we will delete that information as quickly as possible. And then in parentheses in bold, I don't know that this is accurate. Do we have to say that we will delete the information or is there another way around this question mark? That was actually in there. So TechCrunch goes on to say, a short time after contacting Telly for comment, the company removed the section from its privacy policy. In an email, Telly's chief strategy officer said an old draft of the privacy policy was uploaded by mistake. Still not a good look. Lawrence said its developers did not believe it was possible to capture personal information on children under 13, adding that minors are not allowed to register with Telly. 
It is not the only red flag in the policy itself. According to the policy, some of the data it collects is sensitive, like precise geolocation. The television also collects names, email addresses, phone numbers, ages and dates of birth, zip codes, gender and ethnicity, and quote, sex life or sexual orientation, unquote, which Telly quietly removed after this article was published. The startup says it also collects your quote, cultural or social identifiers, unquote, such as a sports team you might like, activities you enjoy, or things like if you're quote, an environmental activist, the policy states. I think they summed it up really nicely in this last sentence here. While it may not be surprising that a free ad-supported product is collecting vast amounts of information about its users, there are dangers in collecting this data to begin with. Speaking of arguably irresponsible, new zip domains sparked debate among cybersecurity experts. So earlier this month, Google introduced eight new top-level domains, TLDs, so these are .com, .org, whatever, that could be purchased for hosting websites or email addresses. The new domains are .dad, so by the way, if the privacy dad is watching this, you totally need to snag that up, the privacy.dad. .dad.esq, .prof, prof, like professor, I guess, .phd, that's a good one, actually, .nexus, .foo, and for the topic of our article, .zip and .mov. You may recognize those last two because zip is a zip file, like a compressed file, and MOV is a video file. I think it's the default format for Apple devices. I could be wrong about that, but it is a very popular one. The article notes that technically these TLDs have been available since 2014, but they were not generally available to the public. So now anyone can go out and purchase a domain, like the article says, like bleepingcomputer.zip, for example. However, these domains could be perceived as risky, as they are also the extensions of files, like I said, and they are commonly shared in forum posts, messages, and online discussions, and they will now be automatically converted into URLs. And they, they point out in the article, like, this is even increasingly exacerbated by the fact that a lot of people will embed links into the text. You know, like, you see this everywhere. You can see this on the New Oils website. Or even, you can see it on Surveillance Report's website. If you go to our website, surveillancereport.tech, you will see if you scroll down, it lists our social media and it'll say Mastodon. And it doesn't provide a link, it is a clickable link. The problem here is it just creates a lot of confusion. People could think that they are downloading a zip file when they're actually being redirected to a website or vice versa. People could think that they're trying to go to a website when they're actually getting a zip file. And the first one I think is a lot more risky because we mentioned the risk of JavaScript before. You could redirect someone to a malicious website that as soon as they get on the website, it just automatically loads whatever the payload is gonna be. There's a lot of debate here. The article goes into that. It's like, there are some people who are like, this is a really bad idea. And then as always, there's other people who say, you're an idiot. There's nothing wrong with this. Don't be such a fear monger. Speaking of Google, Google will disable third-party cookies for 1% of Chrome users in the first quarter of 2024. This is part of the whole privacy sandbox thing that we have talked about. We are not fans for those who are just joining us. The privacy sandbox, it really just puts Google in the middle of everything. And like, that's not even an editorialized version. That really is the simplified version. So their goal is to get rid of third-party cookies and Google will become the proxy between you and the advertisers. So now advertisers have to create kind of more contextualized ads. They have to say like, oh, we want to target people who are into fitness or into um, cars or, you know, whatever. And then Google is the one who is collecting all that data about you and saying, oh, these people fit that description, so we'll serve your ads to them. So the advertisers don't see you, you don't see the advertisers, but Google's right in the middle and they're the ones proxying and arbitering all this information. Arbiter, arbitering, arbiting, something. They are the arbiters of all this information, which is why we're not fans of it because it doesn't really solve anything. It just makes Google the gatekeeper and they're still collecting all that information which I mean, I guess there's something to be said for like trusting less people. You're only trusting Google instead of everyone else, but just stop tracking people. It's that simple. And they keep getting met with resistance over this. That's 
kind of the thing to keep in mind here. That's why they keep pushing this back is because people keep, like us, people keep saying like, this isn't cool, don't do this, find something else. So they keep delaying it in the hopes that people will eventually forget and they'll just kind of slowly get used to it, which is exactly what's happening here. So in 2024, they're gonna migrate 1% of Chrome users over to the privacy sandbox. They're gonna disable third-party cookies and you know, then they will be, like I said, they'll be in between us and the advertisers. They are still on schedule to completely deprecate third-party cookies in the second half of 2024 for all Chrome users. In addition, with the launch of Chrome 115 released in July, Google is making the Privacy Sandbox relevance and measurements APIs generally available to all Chrome users, making it easier for developers to test a these APIs with live traffic. Google does not plan to make any significant changes to the API after this release. Okay, let's go over and talk about Apple. Apple has blocked 1.7 million apps for privacy and security issues in 2022. So they claim that they prevented more than $2 billion in transactions tagged as potentially fraudulent and blocked 1.7 million app submissions for privacy, security, and content policy violations in 2022. The company also terminated 428,000 developer accounts for potentially fraudulent activity, deactivated 282 million fraudulent customer accounts, and blocked 105,000 developer account creations for suspected fraudulent activities. The team also protected Apple users from hundreds of thousands of unsafe apps last year, rejecting almost 400,000 apps for privacy violations, such as trying to harvest personal data without consent or knowledge. Another 153,000 were rejected for misleading users and being copycats of already submitted apps, while 29,000 were denied for using undocumented or hidden features. In more than one case this year, App Review caught apps using malicious code with the potential to steal credentials from third-party services. In other instances, the team identified several apps that disguised themselves as innocuous financial management platforms but had the capacity to morph into another app. Nearly 24,000 apps were blocked or removed for the App Store for bait and switch violations. And Apple claims that their team reviews an average of 100,000 app, app submissions weekly with approximately 90% of them under review within 24 hours. We criticized Apple recently. Again, we are not afraid to criticize people for doing the bad things. And again, they probably missed a lot of them. I'm not gonna deny that. I'm not gonna say the app store is perfect. And there were probably a few false positives in there, people that shouldn't have been flagged or deactivated that were. But overall, it's good to see that Apple is, you know, and you can... You can ascribe whatever motive to it you want. That's fine. I'd, I'm sure they're not doing this purely to be altruistic. There's probably a lot of profit incentive there, even if the incentive is just to keep a good reputation so people keep using them. But it's good to see them trying to protect users. Any app you download, be sure to vet it. Be sure you trust it. Be cautious. Our last Apple story, Apple fixes three new zero days exploited to hack iPhones and Macs. Quoting the article, the first vulnerability is a sandbox escape that enables remote attackers to break out of web content sandboxes. The other two are an out-of-bounds read that can help attackers gain access to sensitive information and a use-after-free issue that allows achieving arbitrary code execution on compromised devices, both after tricking the targets into loading maliciously crafted web pages, unquote. This also affected iPads, watches, and Apple TVs, like Apple Watches and Apple TVs. There is some news on the crypto front. If you are a Ledger user, the headline says, turns out Ledger can hold some of your crypto wallet's keys if you agree to it. Ledger, one of the biggest crypto wallet providers, has launched a new feature called Ledger Recover, and not everyone is happy about it, unquote. So this feature is $9 a month, and it lets users recover the keys if lost. It requires KYC, which is where they have to verify your identity because now they're adhering to all these financial laws. So it, it splits your key up into three parts. One is sent to Ledger, one is sent to CoinCover, and one is sent to EscrowTech. And then you verify your identity to recover those pieces if needed, hence the KYC part. Ledger did not handle this well, but a lot of people were kind of weirded out because they're like, hold on. So does this mean that even if, because technically, even if you don't sign up for it, the capability is there, right? Which I acknowledge. And so that's what a lot of people pointed out. They're like, well, technically the capability is there. That's a little concerning. 
And Ledger didn't really handle this very well. They, they posted on Twitter, they're like, well, technically the capability is always there. That's true for any device. You're just trusting Ledger. And then a lot of people also pointed out that apparently a, a year or two ago, Ledger made just like a random tweet where they were just like, oh, you never have to trust us. You know, we can't see your firmware, blah, blah, blah. Basically, they contradicted themselves. So it's not a good look. Again, just don't turn it on if you don't want to use it. But at the same time, I understand why people are not thrilled about this. And it does raise a few concerns. Something to be aware of, I guess, if you need a, a cold storage wallet. All right, let's move on to the parental control app with 5 million downloads vulnerable to attacks. This is an app called Parental Control Kids Place. It comes from a developer called KiddoWares. It is an Android app impacted by multiple vulnerabilities that can enable attackers to upload arbitrary files on protected devices, steal user credentials, and allow children to bypass restrictions without the parents noticing. Quick note on the steal user credentials, the article specified that credentials are hashed with MD5, which has for years been deprecated. The app is a parental control suite with 5 million downloads on Google Play, offers monitoring and geolocation capabilities, internet access and purchasing restrictions, screen time management, harmful content blocking, remote device access, and more. The app has been updated. It is now fixed these vulnerabilities. Okay, and then we just have a quick update from Steam. Steam says they will stop using Google Analytics. Very small bit of good news. And of course, this does not affect the games themselves. You know, for example, GTA 5 requires an anti-cheat. Anti I've complained about that on past episodes, I think. But it's, it's good that Steam itself is taking that step to be a little more privacy friendly. Our last company story, I want to be real cynical on this one. I'm only sharing this one because multiple people have sent it to me. The headline says, next steps for Neva. Neva is a quote-unquote private search engine. It's an ad-free search engine. That's all it is. I think it was founded by a former Google employee. They went off, started their own search engine. They charge you for it, which makes sense. You're paying one way or another, right? So rather than paying with your data, you pay with actual money and they don't serve you ads. They are shutting down. According to their blog post, they're probably going to try to get into the AI game because they've already got all that stuff built in now that everybody's gone all crazy for AI and added AI assistants that are usually wrong to their search engines. So they're like, well, we're already here. Let's see if we can make money in AI instead. But clearly being a search engine did not work out for them. Y'all, Neva was never private. I don't think we ever even, or maybe we covered them once when they first launched and we said it back then too. Like I'm, I'm attaching their privacy policy for reference. So go to the show notes and fact check me. It says, number one, it says they collect three types of data about you. Data you provide, data automatically collected, which both of those are normal, and data from third parties. That should be your first red flag for a quote-unquote private search engine. As far as data you provide, they collect things like phone number and your contact list. Now, again, you have to give them permission for that stuff, but why do they want that in the first place if they're a quote-unquote private search engine? And then for like data automatically collected, location, refer, cookie identifiers, browser version, which I'm never a fan of, types of content, that's an actual quote, types of content. For example, if you look up the weather and how long you looked at the weather for and more. Like guys, that doesn't sound like a private search engine to me. And for the record, every website needs to collect a certain amount of data. I understand that. And the amount of data varies from website to website. Like I really wanna know are my users visiting from mobile or desktop? Are they visiting from like Firefox or Chrome? Those are things that help me optimize the website. But like what types of content and how long you viewed it, refers, cookie identifiers, like they don't need that information. They were never a private search engine. So I don't know why this is big news in the privacy community, but apparently it is. Although it doesn't matter anymore because now they're going to shut down and take their tech bro startup crap over to the AI game and try to cash in on that big buzzword right now. So good luck. Switch over to a different search engine. 
And with that, we'll move into research. We only have one story. This one's actually kind of big. It says KeyPass exploit helps retrieve clear text master passwords. Fix coming soon. So a new KeyPass vulnerability makes it possible to recover the KeyPass master password apart from the first one or two characters in a clear text form, regardless of whether the workspace is locked or possibly even if the program is closed. So kind of a big deal. It says no code execution on the target system is required, just a memory dump, um, which I don't know how to do, but I know it is super easy. It's just like a couple commands, doesn't require any admin privileges, anything like that. It doesn't matter where the memory comes from. It can be the process dump, the swap files, hibernation files, or RAM of the entire system. It does not matter whether the workspace is locked. The flaw exists because the software uses a custom password entry box named Secure Text Box X, which leaves traces of the character the user types in the memory. The vulnerability impacts the latest versions of KeyPass 2.5, uh, 2.53.1, and as the program is open source, any project forks are likely affected. KeyPass 1.x, XC, and Strongbox do not appear to be impacted by this, according to the developer of the tool. While the proof of concept was tested on Windows, the exploit should also work for Linux and Mac with some modifications, as the problem isn't specific to the OS, but how KeyPass handles user input. Since memory dumps must be retrieved for the KeyPass master password to be recovered, the exploitation requires physical access or malware infection on the target machine. The information stealing malware could quickly check if KeyPass exists or and is running, and if so, dump the memory and send it back to the database send it and the database back to the attacker for offline retrieval from the memory dump. That'll bring us into politics. We'll start off with a story that says FBI misused surveillance tool on January 6th suspects, BLM arrestees, and others. I'm just gonna quote part of the article. The FBI has misused a powerful digital surveillance tool more than 278,000 times, including against crime victims, January 6th riot suspects, people arrested at protests after police killing of George Floyd in 2020, and in one case, 19,000 donors to a congressional candidate, according to a newly unsealed court document. The FBI officials say they have already fixed the problems, which the agency blamed on a misunderstanding between its employees and Justice Department lawyers about how to properly use a vast database named for the legal statute that created it, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. The failures to use the database correctly when collecting information about U.S. citizens and others may make it harder for the agency to marshal support in Congress to renew the law, which is due to expire at the end of this year. The article goes into a lot more detail, but that's, you know, the broad strokes. Our next story comes from the TSA. They are testing facial recognition at more airports, raising privacy concerns. The TSA says the pilot is voluntary and accurate, but critics have raised concerns about questions of bias in facial recognition technology and possible repercussions for passengers who want to opt out. The technology is currently in 16 airports. In addition to Baltimore, it's being used at Reagan National near Washington, D.C., airports in Atlanta, Boston, Dallas, Denver, Detroit, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Miami, Orlando, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, San Jose, and Gulfport, Biloxi, and Jackson in Mississippi. However, it's not at every TSA checkpoint, so not every traveler going through those airports would necessarily experience it. Travelers put their driver's license into a slot that reads the card or place their passport photo against a card reader. They then look at the camera on screen about the size of an iPad, which captures their image and compares it to their ID. The technology is both checking to make sure the people at the airport match the ID they present and the identification is in fact real. An officer is still there and signs off on the screening. A small alert... A small sign alerts travelers that their photos will be taken as part of the pilot and they can opt out if they like. It also includes a QR code for them to get more information. As various forms of technology that use biometric information like face IDs, retina scans, or fingerprint matches have become more pervasive in both private sector and federal government, it's raised concerns among privacy advocates about how this data is collected, who has access to it, and what happens if it gets hacked. Meg Foster, a justice fellow at Georgetown University's Center on Privacy and Technology, said that there are concerns about bias within the algorithm of various facial recognition technologies. Some have a harder time recognizing faces of minorities, for example. And there's the concern of outside hackers figuring out ways to hack into government systems for nefarious aims. With regard to the TSA pilot, 
Foster said she has concerns that while the agency says it's not currently storing the biometric data it collects, what if that changes in the future? And while people are allowed to opt out, she said it's not fair to put the onus on harried passengers who might be worried about missing their flights if they do. The TSA said the camera only turns on when a person puts their ID card, so it's not randomly gathering images of people at the airport. Next up comes from Homeland Security, who is using an AI tool to analyze social media of U.S. citizens and refugees. It is called Babel X. The system lets a user input a piece of information about a target, their name, email address, or telephone number, and receive a bevy of data in return, according to documents obtained by these reporters. Results can include their social media posts, linked IP addresses, employment history, and unique advertising identifiers associated with their mobile phone. The monitoring can apply to U.S. persons, including citizens and permanent residents, as well as refugees and asylum seekers, according to the document. The document says results from Babel X will be stored in other Customs and Border Patrol operated systems for 75 years. All right, this is our last federal story. It says the post office is spying on the mail. Senators want to stop it. I like this opening paragraph here. Each year, at the request of police and intelligence agents across the country, the U.S. Postal Service conducts surveillance on physical pieces of mail going to and from the homes and businesses of tens of thousands of Americans, a group of U.S. senators says. To initiate the surveillance, the department or agency has at least one hurdle to climb. First, they must submit the request in writing. Then, well, nothing. That's the entire hurdle. <laughs> the article goes on to say it doesn't it being the program. It doesn't indicate that they're the target of an investigation nor even suspected of doing anything illegal. So there's no notification to the person who's under surveillance. It doesn't necessarily mean that anyone in a position to charge someone with a crime knows for certain that a crime has occurred. And as the Postal Service itself says, a law enforcement agency can also freely use the data recorded from outside a piece of mail, commonly known as the metadata in the context of digital communications, to identify property intent intends to seize. In contrast, the senators note the government can usually only monitor metadata associated with the electronic messages with a court order. So basically what they're saying is they can do this. All they have to do is submit a request in writing. They don't need a court order. There's no, like, you do not get notified that you're under investigation. There's really no oversight. And it works off metadata. They don't open your mail. But I mean, if if y'all have been here for a while, you know, metadata is incredibly dangerous. Edward Snowden once said he would rather have the metadata than the actual data because it's it's so much more expansive. It doesn't lie. It Yeah, dude, not good. If we get any updates to the story, we'll let you know. Uh, they The article says that several senators, I want to say bipartisan, have like written letters about this to USPS and is like, hey, we need to we need to talk about this. So if we hear anything, we'll keep you updated. A couple of state level stories, Montana TikTok users file lawsuit challenging ban. So for those of you who missed it this week, Montana officially banned TikTok. And I saw at least one article that said, we talked about this a, a week or two ago, the law is worded so poorly that it actually bans all social media, but I only saw one article talking about that. So yeah, they've officially banned TikTok. I believe it goes into effect in January. And there's a, a whole host of problems here. Like for example, Apple and Google both say that they can control the app store by country, but not by state. At least not at this time, they would have to rewrite the code. The article also points out VPNs are a thing. I'm just gonna leave it at that. A group of TikTok creators have sued to block a recently signed law that bans the app's operation in Montana. The suit, filed last night and announced today, whenever day that was this week, alleges that Montana's SB 419 is an unconstitutional and overly broad infringement of their right to speech. This week's lawsuit attacks the Montana law on several fronts. It argues that Montana is depriving state residents of a forum for sharing and receiving speech, violating the First Amendment rights. It also argues that SB 419 violates the, Commer the Commerce Clause by effectively restricting interstate commerce, and it says the law is preempted by federal sanctions 
nation's powers. The suit defends TikTok as a way to learn about current affairs, promote local businesses, and showcase the natural beauty of Montana, offering a counterpoint to SB419's claim that the app encourages dangerous stunts and promotes inappropriate content. Its plaintiffs include the owner of a small Montana-based swimwear business that has gained a following on TikTok, as well as a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, a college student, a rancher, and a comedian, all of whom share videos and make money through the app, unquote. Okay, quick update to a story. Kia and Hyundai agree to a $200 million settlement for making cars viral theft targets. Hyundai and Kia will pay out $200 million in a class action lawsuit settlement, compensating roughly 9 million people for their losses after a 2022 social media trend revealed how relatively simple it was to steal certain models. The article goes into detail. It's really not much per user. I mean, it's only, it's like less than $10,000 each. And in some cases, I think it's like three to five grand, which I mean, I don't think I can buy a new Kia for three grand. I don't know. That's just, that's really weird how they, they chose to pay it out. But, um, I guess it's good to see these companies being held accountable for their, their poor security, which is really what is indirectly happening here is they did not prioritize security. They ignored it when this started and now they're being told to be held accountable, which is good. Speaking of being held accountable, Google reaches a $39.9 million privacy settlement with the state of Washington. The settlement revolves around the claims that Google deceived people into believing they controlled how the search and advertising company collected and used their personal data. In reality, the state said Google was able to collect and profit from the data even if consumers disabled the tracking technology on their smartphones and computers, invading consumers' privacy. A consent decree filed on Wednesday in King County Superior Court requires Google to be more transparent about its tracking practices and provide a more detailed location technologies webpage describing them. In November, Google agreed to pay $391.5 million to resolve similar allegations in 40 U.S. states. Some states, including Washington, chose to sue Google on their own. Arizona reached an $85 million settlement with Google last October in one of those cases. All right, and our last U.S. story is just a quick signal boost. This comes from the organization Fight for the Future, who does great work with privacy, by the way. This page says, ban facial recognition at live events. And they're asking artists, fans, and venues to boycott facial recognition technology. So if you are a fan of uh, concerts, stand-up comedy, theater, really anything that takes place at, at a venue, a live event, you should definitely go and sign this petition. Unfortunately, that petition would not have helped fans in Cardiff in this next story because this petition is for the US. Police used live facial recognition in Cardiff during a Beyonce concert. The technology was used in the Cardiff city center, but not at the stadium, according to the police, to quote unquote support the artist concert at the Principality Stadium by identifying unwanted individual or wanted individuals and ensuring safeguarding, according to South Wales police. In the past, police use of live facial recognition, which is LFR, in England and Wales had been limited to special operations such as football matches or the coronation when there was a crackdown on protesters. I'm probably going to mess this name up. Dara, Dara Murray, a senior lecturer of law at Queen Mary University in London, said the normalization of invasive surveillance capability at events such as concerts was concerning and was taking place without any real public debate. I think things like live facial recognition are the first step, but I think they're opening the door to the use of permanent facial recognition across citywide surveillance camera networks, he said. The news come as ministers call for facial recognition technology to be, to be embedded in everyday policing, including body-worn facial recognition technology by officers. This next one says the UK court tosses class action style health data misuse claim against Google DeepMind. This is just a real quick one. The decision underscores the hurdles facing class action style compensation claims for privacy breaches in the UK. The complainant had sought to bring a representative claim on behalf of the approximately 1.6 million individuals who medical whose medical records were, starting in 2015, passed to DeepMind without their consent or knowledge, seeking damages for unlawful use of patients' confidential medical data. The Google-owned AI firm had been engaged by the Royal Free NHS Trust, which passed it patient data to co-develop an app for detecting acute kidney injury. The UK's data protection watchdog later found that the trust had lacked a lawful bias basis for the processing. In a judgment issued today, 
The judge dismissed the case on the grounds that it did not meet the bar for bringing a representative action, which requires the claim to be based on general circumstances that apply to the entire class rather than on individual circumstances, finding therefore that the claim would be bound to fail, unquote. And then the last UK story, the UK secretive web surveillance program is ramping up. So at the end of 2016, the UK government passed the Investigatory Powers Act, which introduced sweeping reforms to the country's surveillance and hacking powers. The law added rules around what law enforcement and intelligence agencies can do and access, but it was widely criticized for its impact on people's privacies, earning it the, <laughs> earning it the name the Snoopers Charter. <laughs> Particularly controversial was the creation of a so-called Internet Connection Records, ICRs. Under the law, internet providers and phone companies can be ordered with a senior judge approving the decision to store people's browsing history for 12 months. An ICR is not a list of every page online you visit, but may nonetheless reveal a significant amount of information about your online activities. It can include that you visited wired.com, but not that you read this individual article, for example. An ICR can also be your IP address, a customer number, the date and time the information was accessed, and the amount of data being transferred. The UK government says an internet connection record can indicate when, for example, the travel app EasyJet is accessed on someone's phone, but not how the app was used. So basically for the past year, the UK has been like testing this whole ICR thing. And apparently, they have tested the operational, functional, and technical aspects and found a, quote, significant operational benefit, unquote, of collecting the records. A small trial that focused on websites that provided illegal images of children found 120 people who had been accessing these websites. It found that, quote, only four of these people had been known to law enforcement based on an intelligence check, unquote. Ireland's DPC set to hit Meadow with record privacy fine over U.S. data transfers. So Ireland's Data Protection Commission is set to hand Facebook owner Meta Platforms a record EU privacy fine for failing to heed a top court warning aimed at protecting users' data from the prying eyes of U.S. security services once it's shipped to servers across the Atlantic. The meta penalty ahead of the fifth anniversary of the EU's GDPR will eclipse the previous record, a 746 million euro fine for Amazon. A data transfer ban has been widely expected and once prompted Meta to threaten a total withdrawal from the EU, the Irish decision will only target Meta's Facebook and won't affect other meta services like Instagram or any of the other firms that have been transferring data the same way, the people said. The ban is expected to come with a transition period and will most certainly be followed by an appeal for Meta in the Irish courts, by which time new transatlantic data pact the EU has been negotiating with the US might have taken effect. Okay, and then our last political story comes from France. It says an anti-piracy program accused of violating citizens' fundamental rights in France. When the French government formed a new anti-piracy agency called Hadopi, Hadopi? I don't know how to pronounce that, I'm sorry. The mission was to significantly disrupt BitTorrent and similar peer-to-peer -peer file sharing networks. Hadopi was a pioneer of the so-called graduated response scheme, which consists of monitoring a file sharer's internet activities and following up with a warning notice to deter their behavior. Any future incidents attract escalating responses, including fines and internet disconnections. The program's effect on overall piracy rates remains up for debate, but according to French internet's rights groups, Hadopi doesn't just take citizens' money. When it monitors citizens' internet activities, it retains huge amounts of data, and then links identities to IP addresses to prevent behavior that isn't a serious crime, Hadopi violates fundamental rights. File sharers had issues with the program for obvious reasons, but for digital rights groups, La Quadrature, La Quadrature de Net, again, not French, massive internet surveillance to protect copying rights had arrived at the expense of citizens' fundamental right to privacy. La Quadrature's opposition to Hadopi anti-piracy program focuses on the law crafted to support it. One of the implementing decrees authorizes the creation of files containing internet users' IP addresses plus personal identification data obtained from their internet service providers. According to the Digital Rights Group interpretation of the EU law, that is unlawful. So basically, France was trying to crack down on piracy, and this group argues, like, not only are you spying on everyone, even people who haven't done anything wrong, you're also collecting identifying information, which is possibly in violation of the GDPR, considering these people are not accused of a serious crime. 
It's just, it's just kind of the issue we have with mass surveillance in general. You are treating everyone like a criminal. You're creating a permanent record of everybody, even people who haven't done anything wrong. And that's really not cool. That's kind of all we got for now. We'll keep you updated if we hear anything more about that. And with all the political stories out of the way, we will now move into FOSS, free and open source news. We have just two stories. The first one comes from Tutanota. The blog is titled Revolutionary Changes Ahead. In my opinion, the biggest thing here is Tutanota has announced that they are going to roll out a post-quantum secure drive. So for those of you who want encrypted cloud storage, Proton leaves a little bit to be desired. So here within the next few months, you will have another option. They are expecting, like I said, to launch this within the next few months. They did not give a hard date. They are also planning to add a new domain name for paying premium customers, and they are restructuring their premium plans to be a little bit less overwhelming and uh, patchy, I guess you could say. Pretty cool stuff. And then our last FOSS story comes from Mulvad, another company that I like. They said security audit of our lita.mulvad.net search service. If y'all didn't know, when Mulvad launched the Mulvad browser, it also came with a search service called Lita or Leta. I still don't know how it's pronounced, but it's it's a uh, it's a meta search engine for Google. So it's like StartPage, but it's run by Mulvad instead of StartPage. Uh, it's a proxy for Google. It does require a Mulvad account. You have to log in with your account. That said, Mulvad recently had the Lita search engine audited or the Lita search service audited. So they hired Assured AB, which is a name we've seen before. They seem to do a lot of auditing and they seem to be a very trustworthy company. They were tasked with conducting a penetration test on Mulvad Lita to assess web application with regards to security and privacy. Overall, Lita is well-contained with a small attack service and good measures have been implemented to strengthen privacy as well as security, unquote. The audit found three low priority concerns and three notes, all of which were fixed and addressed. So... Good stuff. Good job, Mulvad. With that, we'll move into Misfits. We just got two quick stories here, and both of them are just kind of like interesting takeaways. So the first one, it says, cybercriminals target WordPress plugin flaw after proof of concept exploit released. Cybercriminals are actively exploiting a recently fixed vulnerability in the WordPress advanced custom fields plugin roughly 24 hours after a proof of concept exploit was made public. The vulnerability in question is a high-severity reflected cross-site scripting flaw that allows unauthenticated attackers to steal sensitive information and escalate their privileges on impacted WordPress sites. So basically, somebody discovered this vulnerability and released a proof of concept. And if y'all don't know, cybercriminals, at least the good ones who like make full-time careers out of this stuff, they have bots that are basically constantly scanning the internet for research papers and proof of concepts just like this because they know this stuff is going to get patched quickly and they want to have as much time as possible to number one, find it because the odds that they're just going to stumble upon it are pretty low. And number two, to uh, start taking advantage of it. So it's just, it's really shocking how fast this one rolled out within 24 hours, like within literally less than a day and attackers are already making use of this exploit, which was extremely popular. Uh, it's on 1.4 million websites Excuse me, that's actually just the people who haven't upgraded. So it's used on a lot more websites out there. There's at least, at the time of this writing, there were 1.4 million that have not updated yet. It's it's really important to have automatic updates enabled and to keep your stuff updated. And actually, I wanted to, um, I wanted to go ahead and note here, because normally I'm really quick to defend, like LibreWolf, for example. I've seen some people say like, oh, LibreWolf doesn't get updated right away. I think on their website, they say that they'll push out updates within three days. But I mean... Clearly, that can be kind of slow sometimes. And same thing with some custom ROMs. Certain custom ROMs sometimes may take a few days to like get a patch pushed out to the general public. More often than not, I personally don't think that's a huge issue. 
but I think it is worth being aware of. Sometimes, especially if you have a really high threat model or a really large attack surface, it is totally legitimate to say, hey, I'm gonna use Firefox, even though it sucks, because they get security updates quickly, or I'm gonna use uh, Brave because it has better security than Firefox. The difference is negligible, but I mean, when we're talking about attacks that can roll out this quick, I, I think that's valid. So I'm still gonna keep using Firefox. <laughs> or LibreWolf, I mean, I'm still going to keep using LibreWolf and uh, I'm totally a fan of it. But it is important to note that, you know, some people, especially if you have a higher threat model, that's something to be aware of and ask yourself, like, is it okay for me to be willing to take that risk of having slightly slower updates in exchange for whatever this thing has to offer that I'm interested in? It's just a wild story. And then speaking of wild stories, I wanted to end with this one just because it's really fun. The headline, so the headline says, Big Sauce Wants Your Condiment Data. The article says, at first, Heinz Remix simply appears to be a mix and match soda dispenser for sauce. Yet a great deal more is going on beneath the surface. Kraft Heinz said yesterday that the machine will offer folks the power to personalize their sauces like never before. It follows a two-step process. Select a base, for now, ketchup, ranch, 57 steak sauce, and barbecue, plus one or more enhancers, for now, jalapeno, smoky chipotle, buffalo, and mango. The enhancers can be customized via three intensity levels, low, medium, and high. The article goes on to say, it's an insights engine and business model enabler. According to one executive, the machine will enable the 47.75 billion sauce giant, billion dollar sauce giant to quote, understand and respond to customer trends and flavor preference in real time, unquote. In other words, while we're not sure what sauces will come from Heinz Remix, one thing is already certain. When Heinz pilots the tech with restaurants later this year, the company will be doing some dipping of its own, collecting morsels of sauce data from unsuspecting guests, leaving us with a crucial, crucial question unanswered. Who sauces the saucier? Saucier. I don't know. Uh, it's a fun article, but they do make a really good point. It just shows you like data's everywhere. And I, let's be honest, depending on what they're collecting, because I mean, sure, we've seen, I mean, we've just spent an hour talking about all the ways that all this data can spin out of control and people can collect way more than they need. If all they're collecting are, you know, like, hey, people really prefer smoky chipotle barbecue sauce. Like, I don't think that's a big deal, but it, it definitely does show again, like data's everywhere. Everything's being collected all the time. And and again, you know, unsuspecting guests, a lot of the time we don't even know, like how many of these people, and I'm sure if you bring it up to them, they'll probably be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But how many of these people go up to this thing knowing like, okay, whatever I pick is going to be noted and possibly used to make an off the shelf version of this later. It's just, an, it, it's like, it's a fun story, but it's also one of those things that's still kind of got some, some food for thought, no pun intended. So yeah, it's real short. Feel free to read it if you want. It was a good article. It was very entertainingly written. Okay, with that, we will move into our Q&A. Reminder for non-patrons, if you wanna ask us a question for $5 a month on Patreon, you can do so. Although keep in mind, we're not guaranteed to answer every question. This week's question comes from Cookie Gaming, who says, what are your thoughts on AI tools from Google and Microsoft respectively? Do you think they will use it as a data collection tool or do you think they will be more privacy protecting with it? Obviously, I can't speak for Henry. I, I will say if Henry disagrees with me, I will encourage him to put up a YouTube short later this week it's saying his perspective. I think they will use it as a data collection tool. I have absolutely no reason to believe that they will preserve privacy in any way, shape or form. I don't think they have any incentive to be more privacy preserving with it. I'm much more concerned with the accuracy of it. Cause like I use Brave for most of my searches and I frequently notice that Brave's AI is extremely wrong. And I see Brave's AI do this all the time. And so that's really more my concern is 
I am much more concerned about AI, especially in search engines, unintentionally spreading misinformation. I don't think Google and Microsoft are gonna weaponize it, at least not at this time and not to an extreme extent, not any more than they have anything else. But I'm just more worried about people looking it up and seeing an answer and going, oh, okay, that's, that's the answer and moving on and it's not the answer. And I think that's gonna pour into everyday life because truthfully, I don't think most people are gonna use like chat GPT and things like that, not directly, I don't think they are. I think what's much more likely is especially, you know, we just mentioned Neva's trying to get in on this game. I think what's a lot more likely is that AI is the big buzzword. It's NFTs for 2023. And these companies are going to cram it into everything, especially things where it has no business being. I guarantee, I guarantee you, bookmark this. Before the year is out, we're going to see like smart vibrators with AI. We're going to see smart thermostats with chat GPT. We're going to see children's toys powered by chat GPT. I guarantee y'all are already linking these articles in the show notes to tell me about this. So like they probably already exist and I just haven't heard about them. We're going to see it in everything. And that's my concern is not that people are going to inter directly interact with these tools in the um, quote unquote behind the scenes way like chat GPT, for example, my concern is more that these tools are going to be shoved into everything. Everybody's going to end up using them, usually without knowing it. And they're already, I shouldn't say they're already, they're currently unstable, unreliable, untrustworthy. They might always be that way for all we know. I don't know if they'll ever iron it out to any degree of reliability, you know? So that's really my bigger concern, aside from the data collection, because, again, these are companies that are already collecting data for the average user. You know, most people are using Gmail, Search, Google Calendar on a Windows machine. I don't think it's going to be any more of a privacy threat than it already is, except for the fact that, like I said, I think they're going to shove it into everything. So shoving it into everything, coupled with the fact that it cannot be trusted or reliable, that's what really worries me the most, to be totally honest with you. Yeah, like I said, if Henry has any thoughts to add, I'll uh, let him know when he gets back to... Go ahead and uh, make make a short later this week and share his thoughts on that. And that was the only question we got this week. So um, thank you for asking that question. And with that, we will sign off for the week. I will sign off for the week. Again, human DNA found literally everywhere. Can we do anything about that? We'll find out in the future. It's just good to be aware of for now. A free smart TV that is not actually free in so many ways. A serious key pass vulnerability. You know, just lots of good stories this week that gave us food for thought and kind of reminded us just to be on guard. Like I said, Henry's got burnout this week. So burnout's real. Take care of yourselves and pace yourselves. But at the same time, be aware that there's a lot going on out there. And it's something we have to constantly stay on top of and constantly be aware of and be keeping up to date, which is why you should be subscribed. If you would like to keep surveillance report going and keep this free and consistent every single week, we have a Patreon. Really, every little bit does help and it supports both of us. If for $5 a month, you can ask a question like Cookie Gaming did this week. For $10 a month, you don't have to listen to these promo segments. You get more of our expanded thoughts, which I hope I was able to keep some in for the patrons this week. It's kind of hard to have some bonus stuff when it's just me rambling by myself, but I rambled quite a bit. So I think, I think there'll be some good stuff there. If you're not concerned about that at all, but you just want to like set it and forget it, support us, and you don't care about the perks, we have LibrePay. It's much more privacy respecting. And if you don't care about the inconveniences and you just want to be as private as possible while still supporting us, we have Monero and we don't see anything about you. We do see the, the contributions and we thank you for every single one of them. Thank you all for that. And of course, if you are on a tight budget, I get it. Money's really hard right now. The economy is 
pretty rough. So there's always free things. There's spreading the podcast around. There's giving us a rating, leaving comments, all that kind of stuff. So thank you guys for every little bit of support. It helps very much. And on that last note, thank you for listening to Surveillance Report. Like I said in the promo spot, the final thing we want to ask, share the podcast around. Make sure you are subscribed. Give us a rating if you're on a platform where that's an option. Leave comments the whole nine. We are trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy, and you can help us do that. So thank you for listening, and we will both be back next week.